thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, oh. yeah. So, um, I was thinking, uh, like w when we last spoke, I, I was kind of somewhat skeptical because um, uh, the, the the there were a lot of different factions, especially on the government side, that had to be sort of taken into account. Um, and actually, at that time, if you remember, there were uh, two two uh, there were like two rival governments uh, for Kabul. One of them was led by Ashraf Ghani. Who had claimed to win the election, and the other one was led by uh, Abdullah Abdullah, who had, who had, uh, you know, I think he claimed for the third time in a row that it had been rigged against him. So he had basically he he you know he said enough is enough, and he made a he made a separate government, and then um, the United States were able to reconcile them again, which they had also done in 2014, but it it wasn't a very you know it wasn't a very promising sign for unity. So I thought that I thought maybe if the Taliban make peace with one one of these, then the other one is going to collapse, uh, or you know something like that. But at the moment, most of them seem to have seem to have accepted the Taliban takeover. You know, there was there was there was a brief amount of like you know fierce fighting in some cities, but uh, for the most part, I think the Taliban they just they just got a lot of people to switch sides, uh, and that forced Rani out. I think he alienated a lot of people. Well, um, his his entire like shtick was he was an academic, and his entire um, his entire thing was you know kind of reigning in the sort of autonomous warlords and you know things like that, which you know you, you can you can make a good case for that. But the way he went about it, like he uh, he he tried making sort of central state institutions with American help, which didn't really work. Um, and he was at least perceived by like you know like by the regional commanders and warlords and these people as sort of being uh, um, sort of being unfair in the way that he was targeting them. They portrayed it as if he was uh, targeting like you know Uzbeks and uh, Tajiks and you know other non-Pashtun groups. He himself is a Pashtun, um, and and he wasn't really cracking down on militia commanders from from the Pashtuns. So because of that, uh, you know, there was there was a bit of resentment about that, and then just uh, just the fact that his that his idea of uh, his idea of, of an Afghan state is it was very centralist as compared to theirs. Um, you know, they they had the, like the main thing that connected all of these people. Uh, most of them were from the north of Afghanistan or from the west. So the main thing for them was sort of autonomy from Kabul, like you know. Um, uh, they, 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 you know, they were ready to accept. They were ready to accept its like, you know, nominal control, but they wanted to run their sort of fiefdoms or whatever you want to call it themselves. Uh, and the fact that the that the Kabul government, it wasn't like you know, it, it, it had 
its own re- record of pretty like you know sort of predatory sorts of troops and things like that uh which which wasn't very different from you know, like from from like a stereotypical warlord um that also alienated them so because of these things they sort of and also you know drawing a little bit on, bit on es- ethnic arguments that you know the pashtuns are trying to control us and things like that because of that there was a there was a lot of resentment which had been building for at least 4 or 5 years um and then finally the uh, another thing which i'm not sure how big a role it played but basically in order to in order to kind of undercut support for the taliban who who are you know they're more they're mostly pashtuns uh he was trying to kind of rival them with the sort of a uh his government was sort of uh, attracting pashtun nationalists like ethnic nationalists which of course you know it didn't it didn't um it didn't bode well for these other groups so that was also uh, that was also an issue Sorry, just a minute. I just have to. I just have to reopen this phone. I'm just holding this stop. Sure. Yeah, j- just give me a minute. Okay. So. Just making sure it's still recording. Yeah, it's recording. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so speaking on ethnic nation nationalism, um, there's there's been. there's been like like a strain of that for a long time in afghan politics uh like even b- during the monarchy a few of the a few of the you know sort of the 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 elite who were from the from a uh, the pashtun barakzai uh tribe so they they sort of tried to foment uh pashtun nationalism and daud khan who was the who was the last uh, ruler before the communists took over he was you know he was a very fervent proponent of this um and you know they had they had sort of influences from like you know from from european nationalism like you know um some of the ideologues and they used to say that you know that pashtuns are aryans and you know tajiks or or tajiks and uh, uzbeks are like asiatic people so you know you can't really trust them <laughs> um but so there was that strain dur- during the during the communist and the like mujahideen period th- these things sort of took a back burner but but there was there, there was always a, like you know kind of a marginal ethnic element like you know a lot of groups tended to organize along along lines that fell into ethnic uh ethnic patterns even 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 though very often it wasn't you know consciously ethnic so for example uh, uh hikmatyar's group which was you know it was a very like hardcore is- uh, islam islamic you know islamist uh sort of group very very ideological but um w- when push came to shove they they allied with uh the very hardline sort of communist uh khalqis who were who were one of the two uh parties in the communist uh camp and they both allied against the others which was uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud's group which was mostly tajiks and uh the Pashtuni party which was also mostly tajiks so these things they sort of took on an ethnic element where, you know in times of tension uh even though even though the groups in the groups uh, under question were not really you know ethnic nationalists um i think i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that afghanistan is a very like you know un, uh decentralized region so you know you have these 
sort of regions with 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 very strong local identities. So you know, even if even if you disagree with your neighbor on ideology, but you know, like it, when push comes to shove, you might you might support him in a war or things like that. So so there was th- there was that aspect, but. After the Taliban uh, were ousted, um, you know, even even the Taliban, they were similar to Hikmatyar and Masood. They weren't ethnic. Uh, they weren't like you know they weren't ethno nationalists at all. They were, um, in fact, Pashtun ethno nationalists. Uh, despised them quite a bit because they thought you know like these backward mullahs are taking us back like you know 500 years or whatever. But uh, even in in the case of the Taliban, they were mostly Pashtun. So because of that, when they were ousted from power, there was a school of thought that. Um, that I think there was a lot. It was pre- prevalent among their opponents that these are, you know, that these are sort of uh, Pashtun hegemonists. Um, and then the governments of Hamid Karzai and Ashraf Ghani, they both had, uh, they both had sort of problems trying to rein this in, especially because in trying to form their own, uh, uh, you know, because they were both basically weak figures. They were dependent on, uh, on the United States support. So in trying to sort of foment tribal or you know whatever sort of uh, support. They tended to reach out to Pashtuns because they wanted a ri- Pashtun rival to the Taliban, and obviously that that annoyed the others, uh, the other groups, the northerners. So uh, th- I would say that that ethnic nationalism has hardened a lot in the last, like you know, it's got it sort of been reified in the last five to ten years, um, and it's it's sort of um, it, it's sort of a mixture of you know the after effects of war or or the ongoing uh, the effects of ongoing war. You know, it sort of polarizes people, and also I think a bit of it had to do with this sort of counterinsurgency strategy, which was trying to find a Pashtun alternative to the Taliban, and that, of course, that 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 made the other non-Pashtun groups wary, uh, because the the Pashtun uh, alternatives to the Taliban it tended to be you know it tended to be these sorts of uh, I don't want to say Pashtun supremacists, but like you know Pashtun like nationalists. Um, so, so especially Ghani, in during Ghani's period, uh, the government relied a lot of, on these. So, because of that, I think it's a mixture of counterinsurgency and you know wartime stuff, and you know um, in some cases you know a few uh, ideologues on both on you know in, in every ethnic group, uh, sort of stirring things up. Because of that, I think ethnic politics became a much bigger factor in in the government's camp. And and the interesting thing is that the Taliban, in spite of being Generally, Pashtun in uh, like you know m- mostly Pashtun, they were increasingly keen to to you know sort of distance themselves from this. So they recruited a lot of Uzbeks, a lot of Tajiks, and um, you know Turkmen and you know people like that. And most of their most of their uh, conquests in the north recently they have been by by non-Pashtuns or they've at least been led by non-Pashtuns. So um, in in a way that sort of backfired that sort of counterinsurgency strategy sort of polarized the pro-government camp and uh, it weakened them when you know when the Taliban were were uh, trying at the same time as the Taliban were trying to overcome these ethnic divisions <coughs> yeah
Yeah, so um so the the fact that they that they were able to take over so much like you know uh without that much fighting it obviously it owed a lot to you know to to both outreach with you know different communities but also outreach with different you know like uh power brokers like militia commanders or or you know uh government officials or whatever so because of that i i'm not sure that they even know what this future um what the future structure of power is going to be other than the fact that it's going to be you know sort of a sort of an islamic uh, government with you know sharia and all of that but 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 the the these protests did okay so sorry so what i was saying <laughs> what i was saying was uh that the taliban when they when they uh, took over recently and a lot of it was without fighting uh one one big reason was for that was first they had been trying to do you know outreach or whatever to the sun- communities for a while to try try to turn them away from the government uh and then the other thing was that they'd been making deals with you know militia commanders or officials you know police chiefs things like that so i i, I don't i don't think that they, they even know so far apart from an islamic state like you know an islamic government with sharia and all and all that i don't think they know exactly the sort of the form that this uh government is going to take and that's why there's been a lot of bargaining or whatever uh even now like you know you have people like Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah and um even Ashraf Ghani's brother uh you know they they're discussing things with the Taliban um and uh the the interesting thing is that Kabul which is you know it's always been seen sort of like as an as as a city that's very hostile to the Taliban uh Kabul is pretty quiet right now and the eastern city Jalalabad there were some protests where uh where uh people were protesting the fact that you know some Taliban soldiers they they tore down the flag the, the you know the red green and black flag um and they put up the Taliban flag which had been there before 2001 so people were protesting that and even like the Taliban had to get a uh, cleric out to say that you know this this flag it it represents all of Afghans so you don't have to make it a partisan thing um so basically the threats were random as fighters but i know that uh, that at least I I what I heard was that two people were killed in those protests. So um in some places they've definitely been using been using force. Um and in other places I'm not sure exactly how it's going to play out, but but I I think we will probably see at least some some form of protests against them uh in the next in, you know in the next few months. Um not necessarily because uh because because of you know repressiveness or anything like that, but obviously you know afghanistan's situation is not a it's not a comfortable one and you know whichever government comes to power the sort of the burden falls on them it's like a uh, what do you call it a crown of thorns sort of thing so so unless they're able to deal with that very fast and efficiently uh th- i think they could be you know they they could have some trouble with the, with the protests and things like that <coughs> Uh so first they need to address I think the the sort of government that they're going to have and who's going to be involved. Uh in the 1990s uh when they took over they they were basically you know the the Taliban party if you want to call it it was basically the only it, it was basically the same thing as the government. Uh um, almost like a single party government. Uh and the reason for that was that they had been uh you know they, they had been seeing probably 4 or 5 years of different mujahideen parties or different other parties. 
that had been, you know, sort of horse trading in government posts and, you know, different sorts of coalitions that usually didn't work. They didn't collapse. Like, they, they tended to collapse a lot. So, for example, Hikmatyar and the, the, and the Afghan ruler at that time, uh, Burhan Adin Rabani, uh, they were fighting at the same time as Hikmatyar was the uh, prime minister. So because of things like that, uh, you know, the, the, gov- the official government power sharing, uh, it, it seemed it seemed pointless and it seemed sort of cynical to them back then. So when they took over, they were basically, you know, they were the only, they were the only uh, party or whatever that were in the government. Um, now I think that they're that they're going to have to figure out some sort of power sh- sharing arrangement, because most of the parties have, uh, you know, most of the parties that that uh, didn't fight them, they're w- going to want some sort of, either some sort of coalition government or some sort of local autonomy, something like that. So I think that's a big issue for them. The other issue is, you know, things like uh, uh, foreign, like uh, foreign affairs, like their relations with their neighbors. Uh, the economy, obviously, Afghanistan has been through a very long war, and it's you know it's, it's a poor country anyway. So, uh, trying to sort of fix that is going to be an uphill task. It was an uphill task for the last government too. So, um, that's that's like a very immediate sort of concern for for any government anyway, really. So, I think these are the two main things, and then um, one thing that I think that they're trying to avoid it right now, but. Um, but uh, I think they, they might have to face up to it sooner or later, uh, is that um, that Ahmed Shah Massoud's son, uh, whose name is also Ahmed, uh, him and the former vice president, uh, Amrullah Saleh, who was, who was before that, he was the intelligence chief and he was a very, like, very hardcore sort of opponent of the Taliban. Uh, they've gone to the Panjshir, which is, the, you know, which is like, you know, it's a famous sort of guerrilla uh, stronghold. And uh, they 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 seem to be intending to you know to start an insurgency there, the sort of resistance against the Taliban the way that um, Masood did in uh, Masood Senior did in the 1990s. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to do that because back then Masood was in uh, in league with you know quite a, a lot of other militia commanders and he had a route to the north so he was able to transit through you know, through Tajikistan and also, you know, Iran and Russia, India and all of these sort of Central Asian governments, they were supporting him. Um, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any such support except maybe from Tajikistan and India. Um, and the fact and the fact is that the Panjshir is it's landlocked because the area to the northeast, it has been taken over by the Taliban to the north and the east. So I'm not sure if he's going to be, if, you know, if Am- Amrullah Saleh and Masood Jr. are going to be able to Sort of re- repeat that. Um, it could just be that you know that they're trying to uh, trying to get as big a share, uh, get as many concessions from the Taliban as they want, as they can get. Uh, so that'll have to be seen. Yeah.
so Belton what Belton something road yeah Belton road yeah yeah the basically new Silk Road type of thing and for that Afghanistan is an important area and um, Pakistan has been lobbying very hard for the Taliban uh, to China for for a while now so um, I guess because because you know Pakistan and China are generally very uh, close and Pakistan is a pretty pretty important uh, ally for China uh, I think I think that could help the Taliban too um, what other countries are there? there's Russia Russia was obviously <laughs> the, the the irony is that Russia was uh, really in the 1990s Russia was you know the forefront of of hostility to the Taliban, Russia and Iran and India. Um, at that time, you know, they, they sort of saw it as like, you know, the start of a, an Islamic, you know, militant, whatever thing on their southern borders, uh, you know, because there were wars in Tajikistan, etc. Um, n- now Russia, I think, I think they were, they were happy just sort of to see the United States bleed. The United States, they, you know, they, they, when they entered Afghanistan in 2001, they basically they took all of Russia's vassals and they gave them a bit better offer. So they basically sort of appropriated that from Russia. And at the time, I think, uh, I, I believe, you know, I, I think Putin was fine with it back then uh, because he had, you know, he had other issues, including um, including the war in Chechnya and things like that. Uh, but, you know, we've seen in the last seven, eight years, there's been a lot more hostility between Russia and, uh, and Western countries like the United States. So uh, Russia was, you know, they were sort of happy to see the, uh, the United States sort of bleed in Afghanistan. There were some reports that they were giving out bounties to the uh, for American, you know, American soldiers' scalps uh, to the Taliban. I, I don't, I'm not sure how true those are because there were a lot of, you know, very outlandish reports about Russia for a while. Um, but what it'll be interesting to see now that. Um, now that the United States is out, if Russia still, you know, maintains that sort of toleration of the Taliban, because they're not, they're not friendly with them by any means. Uh, you know, they have long-standing hostilities, and even the recent last two or three years of diplomacy, which Russia has been doing, had had been sort of uh, fostering with the Taliban. It was more, it, I think, it was more in opposition to the United States than anything else. So, for example, when they invited the Taliban to talks in Moscow in autumn 2018 right after that um uh the americans led by Zalbir khalilzad they started you know they, they sort of to pre- preempt russia becoming a kingmaker or whatever in in the region they started holding talks with the taliban too so i think a lot of russia's focus was america centric uh, at that time which is which the taliban were able to exploit um i'm not sure exactly what they're going forward is I think a lot of it is going to be you know in, in league with Iran and then in, in the Iran case uh, you know Iran was another old enemy of the Taliban but for the last uh, in fact you know they even they even helped the United States invade in 2001 they played a big role in Western Afghanistan around Iraq uh, where the the chief of the revolutionary guards uh, uh, what's his name uh, Rahim Safavi he actually helped capture Herat in league with American co- commanders and he's considered to be, you know, a very, very senior hardliner, you know, uh, in Iranian politics. So, you know, th- they were they were happy to see the Taliban out. Um, but now, um, I think in the last ten years, they they've been increasingly unhappy with, uh, you know, uh, America basically being on their eastern border in Afghanistan, 
and then also there was the the you know there was the there were pockets of guys the you know the Islamic State uh, in parts of Afghanistan. I don't think that was such a big concern, but it was a good uh, it was a good pretext for Tehran to you know officially re reassess its links to the Taliban. And for the last five years or so, they've been they've been coordinating at least in Western Afghanistan. And we see a lot more we see a lot more friendly um, friendly links between them. So. Uh, I saw Iranian uh, state television interviewing uh, Khairullah Khairkhwa, who is uh, he used to be the in- Taliban interior minister, and uh, he was imp- he was captured by the Americans in 2001 and released like in 2014. And he was, you know, th- th- it was a very friendly interview. Basically, the Iranians were saying, you know, what's your idea of this uh, this sort of you know this ideology of Daesh and things like that, and he was saying, oh, you know, we oppose them totally. To you know, they're deviant and they do crimes and things like that. So that it seems that, that Iran is on board with the Taliban. Um, wh- who else is there? There's, there's obviously there's Pakistan and India. Um, and a lot of, a lot of their, their interest in Afghanistan is, uh, especially in the Indian case, because India doesn't border Afghanistan, uh, but a lot of their interest is aimed basically at undercutting one another. Um, so you know, during the 1990s, India sort of backed whoever it saw as the rival of Pakistan. Uh, and, you know, by, by default, because Pakistan was supporting the Taliban, India tried to support their opponents. And they were, you know, they, they lobbied very hard, actually, for the invasion of Afghanistan, even before it happened, uh, for like maybe three, four years before it happened. And uh, when that happened, actually, they were also keen sort of to carry it into Pakistan because the links between Pakistan and the Taliban were very obvious. It was very open. But um, at that time, they were sort of they were sort of frustrated on that count because uh, Pakistan's ruler at that time, the dic- uh, he was basically a military dictator, Musharraf. He 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 sort of you know he, he sort of preempted that by becoming very close to the Americans. Um, but after after he was kicked out, it, it became very obvious that a lot of a lot of Pakistan's you know, uh, security establishment and even political parties, they, they basically tolerate the Taliban. So, um, in like India, India and Indian politicians were very uh, keen on, you know, this whole American surge and things like that. And I think that they thought that the United States would stay there much longer than they actually ended up doing. So, like, um, because obviously, you know, being a Pakistani, uh, like, you know, my, my, my family sort of monitors the Pakistani and Indian news with regards to each other. So there was sort of a lot of uh, panic by, you know, the sort of Indian state media in the last few years, like, you know, um, uh, especially in the last couple of months, they were, they were very concerned that the United States is pulling out, you know, should we, should we reassess our relationship with the Taliban, should we, should we, you know, should we take a very hard line against them or whatever. They ended up taking a very hard line and they ended up, uh, you know, v- giving a lot of support to Ghani right until the end. Uh, so m- whether that was because the Taliban gave them like a cold soldier or something, or just because they thought that you know we can't deal with these guys, uh, I'm not sure about that. But um, India is definitely very very uh, unhappy with you know the way things have turned out. Pakistan is like you know they're sort of smug about it. Uh, like <laughs> um, again, being a Pakistani, I, I see a lot of like you know on WhatsApp people are sharing like you know sort of triumphalist sorts of jokes and you know things like that. Um, and you know, there's other people who are you know kind of viewing it like you know like I like an ideal you know Muslim sort of 
victory over you know over invaders and things like that. So yeah, so uh, now the question is if 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 that if that um, you know if, if that Pakistani relationship with the Taliban if it's if it's going to be uh, negatively in, impacted by by the fact that um, China is not very keen on the Taliban. I mean, they're, they're, they're fine with them being there if they can be stable. Uh, if there isn't, if there's instability under the uh, under the Taliban, I think China is going to be concerned and they're going to put a lot of pressure on Pakistan. But at the moment, I think I think these countries are pretty happy with how it turned out. <coughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. W- with Iran, you have to remember, um, like, uh, they're very happy to use sectarian. Like, I think, like a lot, like a lot of the rivals too. But they're very happy to use sectarian sorts of narratives. But if you look at their at their politics as it pertains to Afghanistan, it's always been, uh, you know, it it hasn't really been colored by, you know, Iran automatically supporting the Shias. So, for example. Uh, they actually hem- helped, uh, you know, re- unite the Shia groups at the end of the Soviet invasion into a party called uh, Wehdat, which you know literally means unity. And these were Shias, and they were mostly Hazaras from the Hazara ethnic group. Uh, but in 1992, when uh, uh, this Wehdat group they they helped Hikmatyar attack uh, Massoud, and at that point, Iran, uh, you know, they they. Uh, they they didn't support you know the fellow Shia group. They supported Masood and Rabbani, who had a smaller Shia group on on their own side. But it was a it was a group that with which the Iranians had historically been very uh, uh, suspect about it uh, or suspicious about it. But in spite of that, they helped <coughs> Masood and uh, Rabbani against the, the, you know the fellow Shia um, uh, militia. So it's. With Iran, it's uh, it's it's not really a primarily sectarian thing. Having said that, they do ha- they they maintain they do maintain links with most of the Shia leaders in Afghanistan, and there's been rumors like uh, there was a PBS report last month, um, and I'm not uh, not last month but a few months ago, um, I'm not I'm not sure how accurate it is, but there was say there was an interviewee in it who was saying that uh, you know Iran's uh, Fatimiyun. Uh, brigade, which is basically a paramilitary of Afghan fighters who have fought in Syria and places like that. Uh, he was saying that there's about, you know, I think four or five thousand of them in Afghanistan. Now, I'm not sure if this is sort of scaremongering or whatever, like I haven't seen any other sources for this, but it, it wouldn't be a surprise uh, because Iran are generally very effective at, you know, sort of rallying whatever militias uh, they, can, they, they can help, you know, ab- abroad. So that that might be a cause for concern, but I think at the moment they're they're pretty satisfied with how things have turned out, especially because the Taliban haven't excluded uh, you know Shia groups. They've been making very uh, they've been ma- making very like you know sort of open sorts of uh, friendly gestures to to different Shia communities and things like that. <coughs> yeah.
Yeah, well, you have to remember the Taliban in the 1990s. They were they weren't like you know they weren't uh, experienced politicians or things like that. They were, for the most part, they were you know they were. Sort of rural students who who happened to form a militia and you know, uh, sort of sort of took advantage of or sort of were able to uh, capitalize off the instability. So they, they they managed to get a government, but they had no idea how to run the government. Uh, and they were they were almost entirely isolated, even like uh, even even at the peak of their you know uh, success. I think there were only three countries: uh, Pakistan and. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, who who recognized them, um, and you know it, it was a it was it was sort of a very bare knuckled sort of government. Like they they didn't really they didn't have technical competence or administrative competence or whatever. So a lot of uh, a, a lot of these things, uh, for example, with regards to women studying or women's education, whatever, uh, you know, you would often hear from them that you know that we're not a uh, we're not against women studying. And there were actually there were areas of Afghanistan where, especially in eastern Afghanistan, where they had uh, you know they had women's schools operating and things like that. But uh, you know there were a few big cities and especially Kabul and Herat, um, especially Herat, which you know it has a very strong like you know in intellectual or scholarly tradition. So you, you you had these sort of like you know these sort of village mullahs who took over and uh, not really knowing how to prevent co-ed education. They sort of just cut off women from education, and they would, you know, they would repeatedly say that you know this is just a short-term thing until we can, you know, get the resources or whatever, uh, until uh, th we can manage there being separate education for women and men. Uh, it was sort of like it was it was a something that they that they claimed to consider a priority, but they never made it a priority. So so they, but it wasn't as if they were uh, ideologically against it. Um, and again, you can see this from eastern Afghanistan, where there were women's uh, schools operating, even though you know I'm sure it was uh, it wasn't like you know some sort of Ivy League sort of thing, but they but they did have you know they did have schools operating. During this uh, during this uh, insurgency, last 15 years or so, uh, in most of the areas that I've at least read about or heard of, uh, where they have taken control, they do have some sort of women's education running. Um, I don't know how satisfactory it is or whatever. But they, but they haven't been opposed to that, and what uh, I think, I think, probably you know the penny dropped that you know this was a big reason, uh, for you know this this was a big, uh, this was a big issue that, firstly from a political point of view, uh, uh, you know it, it helped isolate them a lot, because obviously you know a, a lot of the world was like you know they were sort of horrified at, at so many, um, basically, one gender almost entirely, being. Um, cut off from this, these opportunities and then the other thing was also I think from a like a, a logistical or whatever sort of standpoint I think paradoxically maybe because they didn't have the pressures of governing an actual government uh, you know at a local level it's very easy to, it's much easier to run these things than at a state level so in the last 15 years or so they've definitely they, most areas that they've taken over there have been some sort there has been some form of women's education so when they say that you know that we're going to have women in education, things like that. In a way, it's not a, ch it's not a change, but I think they're more, I think they're definitely more flexible and giving it more priority than they did before. Before they used to, you know, sort of pay lip service, but not really, not really, you know, go out of their way to make it happen. Uh, but at least recently, they've at least uh, assured some sort of women's uh, uh, sorry, women's education in the areas that they've controlled.
Um, it'll be interesting to see if you know that carries on in the big cities uh, because it didn't in the past. But so from from what I've seen, the leaders who have been in places like Kabul and Herat, they've been saying you know basically you know carry on the way you're going. Um, uh, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see like like uh, some people are saying sort of cynically that they're just you know doing this just for for international recognition and you know the, the moment people look away <laughs> uh, it'll be you know it'll be back to those bad old days um but but i i sort of doubt that just because i you know it, it wasn't it wasn't like they were ideologically opposed to women's education and i think if they have the resources and if they have some sense of the fact that you know that we were wrong and back in the day which they seem to admit um i don't see a reason why they wouldn't be in favor of it that said it might it, it might be that for women and men, they might have a very, a very different sort of curric- curriculum or different sorts of educational um, opportunities than you know you would normally expect from like a modern state. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I I I definitely agree. And um, what's what's sort of interesting is that you know even the even the Taliban's pre- uh, predecessors, uh, um, what do you call it, Burhanuddin Rabbani's government, um, they were. I think they were a much more like you know worldwide government and you know like they were ideologically they were like you know sort of like the Muslim Brotherhood sort of ideology which is it's you know it's um, it's it's a uh, it's a very practical sort of ideology in the sense that that you know they're not uh, they're not opposed to like you know actually they give considerable priority to you know women's education and things like that um, but yeah so yeah sort of. But but even 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 during their period, uh, because of the war with Hizbutiyar during that period, uh, there was you know like a lot of education was there basically on paper. So you know for example it was dangerous to go to school. There were abductions, you know murders, things like that. Uh, at least in the at least in the war war torn areas like Kabul during that period. So when the Taliban when they shut down the Kabul schools, one reason was you know uh, was firstly they were suspicious of you know whatever curriculum it was. And then the other thing was that that you know that they that they they saw they saw a need to to change the schooling system entirely so that so that boys and girls would be in you know, entirely separate sort of um, uh, institutions or whatever you want to call it. But um, but even with Burhanuddin Rabbani's government, which was you know it was much more uh, I don't want to say advanced, but you know it was it was much more uh, uh, it was much more reasonable on these sorts of things, but even in their period, there was a lot of like you know there was a lot of decline simply because of uh, because of the instability, and then that that was inherited by the Taliban when they came to power because because of the war that was still going on, and because of the fact that they were isolated, they gave almost you know no priority to this very important part of governance. So yeah, <coughs> so whoever whoever is in power, honestly. Um, 
if 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 they can just you know assure assure like you know a level of political stability and um, you know basically guaranteeing people's basic rights at the very least, that would definitely be um, that's definitely like a desirable thing. That that would be really that would be really nice. I think uh, um, like I I'm not I'm not hugely optimistic about that. But then at the same time, um, you know, I'll, I'll, if you you have to remember like you know before the actual war started in the 1970s, it 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 wasn't a, it wasn't a perfect government by any means. It was like the monarchy only. It wasn't a perfect government, but you know they had a, they they did have a considerable stability. Um, even though it was a pretty narrow government being a monarchy. But they had considerable stability. They had some level of, you know, political diversity. You know, different political parties running a, you know, constitutional monarchy. So um, I, I definitely don't think, you know, that that we should be too pessimistic about Afghanistan if if peace returns. Um, <laughs> what's interesting is, you know, recently they've been talking about the lithium, uh, I think, a trillion dollars worth of lithium in Afghanistan, which people have been talking about for five or six years, but you know now it's confirmed. Um, and lithium is, uh, it's you know it's it's I think for the fuelless car industry and things like that, I think it's a it's a big uh, it's a big uh, like you know it's a very necessary sort of material. So um, you know it it could be that <laughs> something happens similar to the Gulf where you know you have the Saudis in control of you know I don't know how much oil, and <laughs> and because of that they they sort of have a they sort of have a you know rich state or at least rich government in the state and you know business is generally proceeding as normal so might that might happen with Afghanistan um, I'm not holding my breath but it would be very nice if you know at least if they if they at least have you know some stability and some level of prosperity uh, even if it's a basic level uh, that, that's a big improvement <coughs> No, you know they they even have like um, like in northeast Afghanistan they have a lot of like you know they have a lot of uh, precious gems and things like that, and you know they have they have opium in in, in other parts of Afghanistan. So I mean it's not like the country is short on resources. It's just uh, it's just a matter of there being the opportunity to sort of to to, to get business up and running. Obviously, its strategic location means that. A lot of people, like a lot of different powers, they are always interested in it, which can be a destabilizing factor. But by the same token, if if it's stable, a lot of those powers would also benefit. Uh, you know, even if there's, you know, people always talk about a pipeline from Central Asia to, you know, the south through Afghanistan, so things like that. So there's definitely a potential for for whatever Afghan government comes, and it's reasonably a decent government. There's potential for 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 them to at least have a good level of prosperity and uh, stability. Uh, 
I think it partly depends on you know what sort of a what sort of a, like you know h- how much how much alternative economic alternative there is. Um, I'm not an expert on on you know the opium industry, but uh, like I was actually speaking sort of tongue in cheek. But the Taliban they did they did ban it in 2000, uh, basically the last year and a half of their rule. They d- had a very effective ban, which you know they almost cut it down to zero. And you know there were there, there were some people who were sort of cynically saying that you know that they're doing this just to uh, just so that you know a few a few businessmen or whoever who support them can have a bigger share of the market. But whatever the case was, uh, um, whatever the case was, they did almost cut it down to zero. So I th- I I think they definitely have the ability to do that. Uh, if they could do it, you know, even even back then when they were sort of like a shambles uh, during a war war period, then. They should be able to do it now, uh, especially if, like, you know, they get international support or whatever, uh, in in counter narcotics or whatever it is. Uh, there's, there, there, you know, there, there's parts, especially of so- southern Afghanistan, where it's a very, it's it's almost, it, it, it's a cash crop, but it's almost like you know, it's like almost the only, the only agricultural thing in town. So it's un. Uh, so in Helmand province, for example, a lot of a lot of farmers they grew it because. Because you know it was it was the best thing for or it was the most lucrative thing for them them to be growing. Um, so if, if they can get some sort of economic alternative to that, um, that would be you know definitely good. Maybe maybe you know that region of Afghanistan there's you know there's a sort of a the Helmand River runs through it. So maybe I don't know if they did some irrigation sort of. Pro- there have been you know things like that. Yeah, even in the during this sort of American occupation, there were initiatives towards that, but. Uh, because of a mixture of war and corruption, it didn't really take off. Um, but it would, you know, it would be in the, it would be in Afghanistan's best interest, obviously, to explore those, those uh, alternative options. And I think the Taliban are capable of doing it. Um, so you know, I I think it's better to be optimistic on on that. I'm actually fine with it. I don't know if, if you guys want to get a drink. Well, um, well, they actually did have a lot of mercenaries operating in Afghanistan. Um, it didn't really get out in the news much, but for at least the better part of the last decade, there have been more mercenaries uh, or whatever PMCs uh, fighting against the Taliban than there have been, you know, U.S. soldiers or whatever. So they they did ha- they did have a lot of them fighting uh, 
against them. And you know, Eric Prince was always like you know sort of hovering around, around, um, around the scene. I think I'm sure that his, I'm pretty sure his 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 company was involved. Um, I haven't looked into it, but uh, they did have a lot of mercenary fighting. The problem with that is that you know, the mercenaries are basically like you know, they're another form of warlords. Like you know, they can help you win battles, but in a long term sort of war, um, they're not really uh, they're not really sus- they're not really a sustainable option. And if you look at Haftar's war, even his uh, attack on uh, on Tripoli, it was sort of like you know, it was sort of like an attempted lightning strike. So for that sort of thing, mercenaries are very useful, uh, and then probably like after a year or so, especially with Turkey helping the opposite uh, his his rivals, um, because of that he had to abandon that. But mercenaries are not a long term option, and you know this was a long war. So, um, uh, in in the in the case of the United States, the you know the attraction of mercenaries was a obviously you know there's a lot of you know I'm sure there's a lot of people in America making. <laughs> At least in like the the elite making a lot of money out of it, but um, the other thing is from political standpoint, you know, it's not like you have to worry about casualties or um, you know losing a lot of troops. Actually, I was um, I remember I was talking to uh, a family friend of ours, and he was saying that you know he was saying compare the the American casualties in Afghanistan to the American casualties in in. Iraq or you know or or Vietnam. Vietnam obviously being the most bloody of you know such American wars, but in, in uh, with the Iraq comparison, uh, it was kind of misleading because uh, it, because the official casualties only count American soldiers. They don't count uh, they don't count um, you know contractors, and I I think something close to like you know almost three times as many uh, contractors were killed fighting uh, against the Taliban. So you know that that sort of skews the picture. Um, so you know it was a it was a very fierce war, but it 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 didn't it didn't make a lot of news because of you know pr- precisely because it was contractors who were doing a lot of the fighting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the CIA and you know, um, you know, these sort of special commandos or whatever you want to call them, uh, they they did a lot of like you know the raids and things like that or assassinations, um, intelligence gathering things like that. I I, I think I think um, I I I can't I can't say this for sure, but I think where contractors played a big role was sort of like in defending. Uh, Either like you know like economic projects like dams and stuff like that, or or you know the bigger cities, um, because because uh, in the bigger cities we heard a lot about uh, you know American American air power, um, but it's not I- like uh, it's not exactly uh, clear you know if if uh, who the ground forces were at the time, 
who were fighting the Taliban. In some cases, it was like you know, it was like militia, or it was you know, like a like a police force. But those tended to be pretty small. So I think, I think in some cases, it at least uh, they had they had uh, contractors guarding the the you know sort of strong points for the government. But uh, you know, these sort of offensive operations, I think a lot of that was done by you know the CIA or by by um, you know these sort of special forces, things like that. Well, apparently, what I've heard is that you know that they they did expect the Taliban to take over pretty quickly. Uh, maybe not just quickly, but they did expect them to come back to power. Um, and and at least this is what you know. This is what a few people are saying. And you know, it was basically sort of for political reasons, it was it, it was kind of shut down. Um, now I don't know if, if I don't know how true that is, but but uh, maybe it's just a disgruntled employee or something. But um, U.S. intelligence in Afghanistan—it was never—it was never really great. Like I mean, I read, like I mean, I read, I read documents at least from the early years, and you know, they, they get they get a lot of very basic stuff wrong. And I mean, I, I this is when I had started studying the war, and um, like you know, I not being not being a you know seasoned expert or something, like that, uh, even 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 I could sort of uh, pick out the flaws. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of mixing up people's names, sort of. Uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, mixing up different groups, mixing up, you know, there's a, there's a lot of confusion basically, um, and obviously, you know, especially in a place like Afghanistan, where, where you know, a lot of people have, have names like you know, like Muhammad Akbar or you know, Abdul Rahman, names like that, and then you know, and then they go by honorifics too, which are often very similar, like Haji or whatever. Um, you know, you can sort of see why, why, why uh, American intelligence would be uh, confused. I think also, also they, they they took a while even to realize uh, that the Afghan ins insurgency was as serious as it was because the Taliban started mobilizing in two thousand and three, and it wasn't until two thousand and six that you know that um, that uh, the United States sort of sat up and took notice for you know a bunch of reasons. You see, it included the Iraq War, it included uh, you know Bush's whatever re-election run and things like that. But even even though they had a considerable like I uh, there there's sort of this view that they didn't pay attention to Afghanistan that they didn't pay attention to Afghanistan at all because of Iraq um, and I don't think that's true because they like even at the low points they had a, they had a lot of focus on you know killing Al Qaeda and stuff like that uh, more than more than people realize but the thing was that they were that, that their focus was wrong it was based on you know uh, for a long time at least it was, it was wrong it was based on you know like reading. The biography of you know Osama bin Laden, or you like you know reading into the the intercepts of you know some Al Qaeda guy talking to another one, things like that. And Al Qaeda wasn't really a big factor in Afghanistan anyway. So, um, so because of that, sort of the 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 political assumptions guided the intelligence. Uh, they were looking for the wrong things basically. Um, and now intelligence on this specific matter. Uh, on the Afghan government collapsing so fast, I think even like I don't think anybody, even like even the Taliban, although you know they they they, ha they did have a press conference where they said you know that we can take it over in two weeks uh, if we want, and that is what ended up happening. But I I think even 
even a lot of them at least didn't expect it to crumble this fast. Uh, I, I think people maybe m- mis uh, misunderstood the you know the amount of factiousness in the government, but also there was a lot of uh, there was a, a lot of attempted like you know cyber warfare uh, against the Taliban uh, definitely in the last three or four months, um, and you know a lot of uh, there were a lot of Afghan accounts who were doing that like uh, Ghani's people basically. Uh, you know, so so you know they would they would they would attack you know a camp or something, and they would say you know we we killed this 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 big guy or you know we, we killed this big car over here and this and that and, you know we have them in disarray uh, you know we we killed a hundred of them you know in these bombings or whatever um, and I'm not sure anyone ever checked up on that but you know they they spread these things like wildfire maybe the maybe the CIA and these sorts of people they they believed it and they were also um, uh, they were also at least the ones that I noticed because I was I was sort of searching, looking it up in real time. So there there was sort of like a cyber campaign uh, by both sides, um, and on the side of the Taliban, you had a lot of Pakistani accounts who were like you know sort of sort of backing them you know, um, and pushing their narrative. And on the side of the government, you had a, a lot of Indian accounts. And I think and I think the Indian thing sort of played a big role because there were a lot of them. There was like, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, there were a lot of like basically ghost accounts or whatever you want to call it, who were, you know, uh, you know uh, they were making all sorts of like, you know, really wild claims. And these are claims that if you, if you tracked the war as from like, you know, from the beginning, you wouldn't believe a lot of these claims. But, you know, a lot of people that didn't track the war from the beginning and um, maybe, maybe the weight of this or whatever, maybe, maybe that, that, ended up influencing even like the fucking people at the CIA and stuff like that. Yeah, to, to, to Twitter comments, even even on, on other forms of social media, it was actually really, really interesting because I was sort of trying to figure out, as it was going on, I was trying to figure out, you know, just some measure of who was fighting with, you know, things like that. So I used to be looking at, you know, ABC Command or, you know, ABC Town or whatever, whatever was going on. And there used to be some, like, you know, really sort of incongruous sorts of uh, claims. So you, you, you'd have, you know, these, basically these villages where, you know, uh, there were people who were claiming, like, you know, these, I don't know how many hundreds of Taliban were killed. And, and, and I was, like, you know, it was pretty obvious that, or it was pretty unlikely that there were that many Taliban there in the first place. Um, I, I, I sort of remember, um, I forget, I think it was a British, it was a British analyst from the 1980s or the 1990s but from a while ago and he said that like you know whenever 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 one of these commanders tells you how many people they killed or how many enemies they killed you have to divide that by 10 so <laughs> so, so maybe that maybe that was also a factor and uh, the other thing is that that you know the, the taliban they're um like you know they, obviously they had their own sort of forms of propaganda but it wasn't from what I saw, it wasn't that far divorced from reality. Maybe because they have, they have a lot of, uh, like you know, their their form of propaganda tended to be more like, well, you know, you know, the, our commander is, you know, forgiving these enemies and things like that. But it wasn't really about, about how many, about about you know, numbers and order of battles and things like that. So uh, maybe it didn't uh, affect affect this sort of cyber war didn't affect them as negatively.
so I, 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 I did see this uh, for a while, and I think it's sort of unfair to, of them to put it on Biden. You know, the speech he made a few days ago was, it was a very patronizing speech. Like, you know, he basically ignored the brands. Uh, throughout, it was more about, you know, like, U.S. soldiers and, you know, like, Afghans weren't willing to fight, you know, things like that. Um, but in its essence, in the fact that, that, that the war, it was well known to have been unwinnable for, like, a long time. Um, so in that regard, somebody had to bite the bullet. Um, and the fact was that, you know, the, the Afghan government, they did collapse very fast. Um, I think... I, I think Ghani uh, was uh, one of his last resorts was trying to, you know, kind of make peace with a few of the militia commanders who he had, uh, who he had pri- uh, previously been at odds with. So he met Ismail Khan from Herat, who was an old Mujahideen commander. Um, and he asked him to, you know, he asked him to help defend the city. And Ismail Khan fought for a while, but then he eventually, he just surrendered. Uh, he just, you know, effectively he switched sides. Um, and and because Ghani had been relying on this sort of stuff, I think the regular Afghan army, which did which had actually fought pretty well in some areas in the early summer, but it sort of it like I'm not even exactly sure how it happened, but it collapsed very fast after Kandahar was taken, um, Kandahar in Lashkaza in the south, and uh, the Afghan army I think it was also largely concentrated in the south. Places like uh, places like you know Kandahar and Helmand and Ghazni, um, and in the north they sort of outsourced it to these other you know militias or whatever in the north or in the west. And when these militias they either were defeated or they stood down or whatever, uh, that was you know that kind of opened up another front. So after that, the Afghan state institutions, the army and you know police and stuff like that, who were mostly in the south and uh, in the east, they they you know they melted away very fast. Uh, and then the another another thing is that a big factor in the war, uh, especially with the you know the Afghan army and the and the police and things like that, was air support. And you know American air support had been, uh, in particular American air support, but also Afghan air support had been very vital for at least five or six years. Um, if you remember the Battle of Kunduz, which was in 2015, and then there was another one in 2016, but um, at that that was the first time that the Taliban they took a provincial capital. Um, they held it for a few weeks, um, and what basically forced them to leave was the fact that you know American air power just bo- bomb bombed them out. It was impossible for them to hold it and make it a base, uh, and that happened in a lot of cities uh, in a, in 2015-2016. Uh, so I think f- after that they just focused on sort of surrounding the cities, but not entering them. Um, and then, you know, knowing that the United States were going to pull out, which was going to happen sooner or later anyway, but um, knowing that the United States were go- going to pull, pull out in 2021, they sort of they t- timed their offensive at such a time that uh, air power didn't make such a big difference. There was still a lot of uh, bombardment from at least the Afghan Air Force in places like Lashkar but it, uh, apparently it wasn't enough to, you know, sort of boost. I think, I think apparently even when the when the planes were flying or whatever, a lot of soldiers had already surrendered or whatever on the ground. So because of that, it uh, the state institutions they melted away very fast. So from that point of view, I, I don't blame Biden from for saying that. Uh, I think I, I think he does have sort of a patronizing or whatever air towards Afghanistan. I think 
in this n- not because he dislikes Alejandro or whatever, but because uh, because he because he was always very skeptical about it being a necessary war. <laughs> All right, so I, I'll just I'll just do that over. And you guys can edit. Uh, so yeah, so as I was saying that people have been uh, blaming Biden for this, uh, you know, especially since his speech, which was very dismissive of you know the Afghan government and Afghan forces. Um, and it, w- it was it was definitely patronizing in the sense that you know he he basically he mentioned the American casualties and things like that, and he sort of you know he just said that the Afghans didn't have the will to fight, so you know that's definitely you know it's a very insulting sort of way to you know add, adding insult to injury basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I I think I I think I think maybe he might have even been surprised by by you know by this sudden like you know this last two weeks or so uh that the army collapsed but the problem was that you know that, Ash- that ashraf ghani he, uh as i mentioned he'd alienated a lot of you know warlords and commanders and things like that and then uh he he tried to focus his his army on the pashtun sort or not i don't want to say pashtun necessarily but on the south and on the east you know areas that are a little closer to kabul so he he sort of garrisoned these areas very strongly, um, and in order to sort of make up the deficit, because the Afghan army is not as you know as big as it says on the label, uh, he he sort of he's tried to reconcile with a lot of these commanders who were obviously suspicious of him. So you know uh, Ismail Khan, who was an old Mujahideen commander, who Ghani had actually helped kick out in 2004 when Ghani was the finance minister. But uh, a few months ago, Ghani basically reached out to him again and said, you know, can, can you help defend Hirat? So Ismail Khan, you know, he, he had been fighting for uh, two or three weeks. But um, but in the end, you know, he, he sort of, he, he just, you know, he sort of th- threw in the towel and he effectively he switched sides. Uh, so uh, a lot of these commanders in the north and the west, they were anywhere they were very suspicious of Ghani. So they probably weren't willing to take, you know, such big losses for him. And then, obviously, when these fronts collapsed, then the 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 guys who were in the south and in the east, the regular army and the police, they were sort of op- you know they sort of vulnerable from another from another angle, from from different fronts. So their morale collapsed very fast. And then the other the other important thing is that since since 2015 2016, the uh, government defense had been uh, very reliant on air power. Um, uh, especially the Battle of Kunduz, which got a bit of coverage in 2015 and 2016. Uh, on both occasions, uh, the Taliban, it was the first time that they captured a provincial capital. And uh, they held it for like, uh, I think the first time it was a month, the second time it was a few weeks. But on both occasions, they, they had to withdraw, mainly because the United States, you know, they bombarded, uh, they bombarded the city very seriously. And at least in 2015, there was a lot of, there was a bit of political controversy too, because they had a hospital. Um, but regardless, uh, the in 2015 to 2016, what the pattern that happened was that the Taliban, when they tried to take a city, the United States immediately bombarded it so that there wouldn't be like a base for them to expand from. So from then on, the Taliban basically focused on sort of surrounding the cities with, uh, you know, basically keeping their gunpowder dry, uh, sort of besieging the cities, you could say, in a sense that government forces were had difficulty passing from one to the other. But they didn't actually occupy them un- uh, until I think it was pretty sh- pretty clear that American air power was on the way out. Um, so 
so this summer is when they really started attacking the cities and at first they had they did have a hard time but by midsummer you know they started capturing you know one after the other and then it was like a domino effect and i think i think there was a question of timing too because even though in places like like Lashkarga where the where the air force was bombing pretty heavily i think a lot of the ground soldiers had you know they'd thrown in the towel uh enough by enough soldiers had thrown in the towel by that point for the bombardment to not make such a big difference so the taliban were able to take over a bunch of different cities in very quick succession so 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 um you know when biden saw this obviously he was he was never hugely enthusiastic about the afghanistan war for a while i think he was correct in saying that basically the united states intervened in the civil war uh because you know in 2001 when, when the united states came in they sort of made it like you know fighting for freedom against oppression and you know, things like that but it it had basically been a civil war and um, it had been the taliban against a bunch of militias at that point and the united states sort of unequivocally took the side of the militias they painted them as you know sort of as liberators they painted the taliban as you know like you know very evil sorts of you know savages and that didn't really that didn't really concord or that didn't really uh, you know jive or whatever with the reality a lot so i think i think when biden realized this and i think it's been pretty much common knowledge for a few years now uh, at least uh, among professional american like soldiers and analysts and things like that officials um i think biden became very cynical about it quite quickly and uh, he thought that you know that okay I'm, i'll if 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 it's uh if they're not if they're going to melt away this fast there really is no point to me continuing this any longer so he he um he did withdraw the soldiers which was which was uh you know it was going to happen sooner or later so i suppose it took a bit of credit for him to bite the bullet uh, courage for him to bite the bullet but at the same time he did it in a way that was really adding insult to injury so there's a lot of criticism has been around that and then a lot of it has been around because um uh, because like especially in american media and like a lot of the world media but um i think it's sort of more intense in the united states uh the the this sort of 2001 narrative of you know forces of freedom fighting forces of garbage and things like that it has sort of been uncritically uncritically accepted even when there's very very you know clear exceptions to that or very clear contradictions of that uh sort of in the popular imagination there's this idea that you know there's the taliban are basically like you know the you know the sort of women hating you know ethnic barbarians or whatever you want to call it uh who are basically the antithesis of 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 civilization um and that that's not only uh like that's not only not true but a lot of afghans and a lot of americans knew that it wasn't true through experience uh but the media hasn't caught up so obviously when pullout happens they are going to they're going to sort of pile on to Biden and he didn't help himself by <laughs> with his speech which was you know a very condescending and sort of almost callous sort of speech he could have been gentler about it though yeah sorry that took a bit a while
Um, so, uh, Kabul, without being, without trying to be, you know, too cruel, but it's sort of been in a sort of a bubble for, like a green zone sort of bubble for like you know about twenty years. Uh, you often hear from Kabul Kabuli residents like you know things about the Taliban, which are you know, it's they're either they're just not true or they're very alarmist or or they're you know in some cases there's even a bit of fascism. Um, and of course, if you because if you look at how the Taliban campaign has gone on in in uh, okay yeah so um the question was about Kabul right so um you know without trying to be too harsh uh, I I I think Kabul for the better part of twenty years it's been in a relative sort of a bubble uh in the sense that you know it's been a little bit like you know how the green zone has been in Iraq which is sort of uh, you know sort of a little island within the country um I've often heard things from you know from residents of Kabul uh both about the Taliban also about you know other parts of the country but obviously especially about the Taliban that are uh you know they're either they're either very flat wrong or they're or they're you know very very alarmist like you know sort of worst case scenario or they are uh in some cases it's a little bit of classism too um but th- this is this is also sort of understandable because if you look at uh, the Taliban rule in the 1990s Kabul was probably the place where they were hated or whatever the most um you know it, it to, to the to the sort of the sort of countryside you know villager or whatever who uh, who comprised like a Taliban fighter Kabul had you know for a long time it had been seen as you know sort of this hub of decadence or whatever which it really wasn't but but that was how it had been seen for a long time even before you know even before the communist period and, and stuff like that um, so the Taliban were in, in especially severe there and they were also especially hated there and then uh, during this you know during this war obviously the taliban sort of sort of sta- uh, kinetic sort of war like you know taking over areas things like that uh, that had been in other provinces or in, you know in the countryside places like that it hadn't really happened in kabul uh, it, from from the point of view of a kabuli citizen uh, you know th- they knew the taliban either from government media things like that or they knew that you know that they had a suicide attack uh, you know the other day over there and like these these suicide attacks they were basically directed towards uh, you know towards military or or like official government whatever targets but obviously in a big city suicide attacks uh, you know th- there were definitely lots of collateral casualties in the Taliban were not particularly um, at least they didn't seem to have particular co- concern about that um, so the bottom line being that they were definitely unpopular in, pa- in Kabul for both good and bad reasons um so the the protests that that we've been that that we've been seeing um i don't think it, uh, surprisingly i don't think it's been that much in kabul um although i'm pretty sure most kabuli residents they're not like you know, they're not happy about situation but i think there, there is a bit of relief that you know the city wasn't subjected to a sort of a bloodbath or fighting you know like a major battle for the capital um basically after Ghani fled and uh, when the Taliban basically killed the vaccine but um the the airport is sort of its own its own um area because it's under the control of the Americans until the end of this month and obviously the Americans are withdrawing and their first priority is to withdraw their their emb- their embassy and you know whatever whatever sort of loose ends they've left behind 
uh, American citizens, things like that. So, so uh, they have they have control of the airport at the moment, and um, they you know they, they employed a lot of Afghans, um, you know, obviously translators translated the Afghan, but you know also like you know in, in sort of uh, government positions or media things like that, uh, a lot of NGOs, uh, things like that, which were sort of uh, sort of dependent on American presence. So one example I can give of that, which which seems reasonably independent, but it's basically it's sort of an arm of the American government. It's the our Radio Free uh, Europe, which is um, which is you know it's 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 an old media outlet, but it's linked to you know American intelligence since the Cold War, uh, hence the name. So you know they they also have an they also had an office in Kabul. Which was uh, which was um, which, which was generally very favorable to government or you know or pro government sort of narratives. So um, you know people who might be working there, whether that's just staff or whether that's you know you know even um, even uh, you know someone who makes coffee, something like that. Um, you know they're definitely going to feel in insecure. They don't want to be seen as collaborators or just be potentially vulnerable to to you know to any sort of retaliation because. At the moment, the main thing that, like you know, they basically only have the Taliban's word that they're not going to retaliate. So there's a lot of panic and things like that. So that that accounts for the airport thing. There's a lot of panic. I don't I don't think the airport situation is that much of an indication of popularity or lack of popularity. Uh, much less, you know, secularism and things like that. As far as Sharia goes, um, I mean, you know, most Afghans are Muslims and most Afghans are, you know, they they, they want some sort of Islamic law of some. Uh, even if it's like you know, even if it's uh, more in on paper than than necessarily uh, in reality. So you know, the the monarchy it was was officially like you know, officially abided by Islamic law. Even um, Burhanuddin Rabbani's government, they were basically Islamists ideologically. They never really had an opportunity to to govern, but that was their ideology. And then the this, this current government that. The United States brought in. Uh, it was also, you know, it's officially the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, um, and they have, you know, they have different sorts of, uh, they have different sorts of views of, you know, how law or how government should be conducted. But, but at least on paper, it's an Islamic government that 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 is that respects Islamic law. Um, the in fact that that was one of the that was one of the tensions. In this American occupation, because a lot of uh, a lot of you know Americans and British and other uh, Canadians, you know, uh, after 9/11, they sort of saw it as a sort of a civilizational sort of uh, crash. Uh, so they, so from their point of view, they were sort of fighting, you know, like uh, at least if if they were not hostile to Islam, they were at least suspicious of it. Uh, I remember reading a British uh, a British officer. He said something along the lines of, you know. We might not be officially fighting for secularism, but that's basically what we want uh, in Afghanistan. So, uh, but at the same time, the government could not, you know, it would have no, it would have very little support if it's uh, if it if it went along that line because most Afghans are not secular. Um, and in fact, especially during Karzai period, there were a lot of like you know very hardline sorts of uh, preachers and. Uh, Ideologues, like very ultra conservative sorts, who who were in you know official positions. Um, 
So I don't think I don't think that th this these themes we see right now reflect much about secularism versus uh, versus you know Islamic government. Um, the Taliban are just one of many factions who who claim to you know implement Islamic law. Um, and but what we could say is that the small amount of Afghan secularists, um, they're more or less uniformly against the Taliban. But I don't think that you know this sort of uh, this sort of these themes and stuff that we are seeing in Kabul, I don't think it really reflects, uh, you know, secularism versus Islamic law, things like that. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's probably serious because I know a lot of people have been saying that um, I know a lot of people have been asking that for him too uh, well Afghanistan has basically been at some, sort of form of, some form of civil war for a long time the closest actually that they gave that they came to ending a civil war was firstly during the early Taliban period before the northern alliance sort of you know, uh, coalesced um, and that was a pretty brief period too. And the second time was, you know, right after the Taliban were kicked out of power, uh, where these uh, their opponents were in power. And at that time, there was probably a lull of about a year before fighting started. And um, you know, but even these these were more or less blips because the Taliban, like you know, very soon, very early, they started fighting with the northern militias. And uh, in in the case of Karzai, even before uh, in the case of the United States, even before the Taliban started fighting. Uh, you know, there was infighting between different, you know, warlords and uh, between, uh, you know, people who were, you know, just, just settling grudges and things like that. Um, and there were a few groups that were not non-Taliban who were also fighting the Americans. So, uh, both of these were basically lulls. Uh, so, we, we're going to have to wait and see if this is a, if this is a similar lull um, and, you know, civil war starts again. But at the moment, the biggest prospect for civil war seems to be the fact that, you know, Amrullah Saleh and uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son, they're in, you know, they're sort of in northeast Afghanistan, they have a little pocket around Panjshir. And uh, I think that they, they claim to have uh, taken uh, a few districts nearby today. Um, and from what I've heard is basically the Taliban withdrew from them because at the moment they don't want to sort of pick a fight even though other things on their plate. But but if, if there is another civil war in the near future, it'll probably be uh, or if there's a restart to a civil war in the near future, it'll probably be on this front. Um, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with you know how much how much support foreign support uh, you know uh, Saleh and Masood get uh, uh, because you know Ahmed Shah Masood was you know he was very close to France basically, so his son has also just recently traveled to France trying to get their support. Um, who else is there? Yeah, I think India is definitely very interested in uh, any sort of resistance to the Taliban, any sort of insurgency, uh, and possibly Tajikistan. I'm not exactly sure about that, but um, I think Tajikistan is definitely not happy of uh, the Taliban being back on its border. So yeah, so so there's there's a prospect of civil war. Uh, there's there, you know there's sort of a danger, but you know hopefully hopefully it doesn't happen. Hopefully some sort of power sharing power sharing arrangement is reached that satisfies everybody.
I, it was my pleasure to always, uh, it was fun this time too. <coughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So I'll just send it off now. Thank you.